Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, freelance journalist and author Kavita Das. Her book, Poignant Song, The Life of Lakshmi Shankar, was published by HarperCollins India in 2019. Kavita Das was touched by the beauty and emotional power of Indian singer Lakshmi Shankar. Das starts her biography by describing a pivotal moment in Lakshmi Shankar's long career, a time when Shankar's voice was featured in Gandhi, the Oscar-winning movie about Indian icon Mahatma Gandhi. And her lending her voice to the award-winning film about Gandhi, which many people are familiar with, and many people are familiar with Gandhi, who's probably the most famous Indian perhaps of all time, was a great way to kind of hook people in and bring them into uh, the story of Lakshmi Shankar and the impact that she's had musically and cinematically. So who is Lakshmi Shankar? Lakshmi Shankar was born in South India in 1926, and she ended up going on to dance first and then sing North Indian or Hindustani music, which in and of itself is a huge barrier to cross, both as a woman and a South Indian woman. And uh, she eventually garnered a Grammy nomination here in the U.S. for her music. And she was part of the movement that brought Indian music to the West in the late 60s. So that's when a lot of people the world over started to become familiar with Indian music and with Lakshmi Shankar, and most notably her brother-in-law, Ravi Shankar, who is the Indian sitar maestro. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. In a nutshell, um, there is no such thing as Indian music. That's actually just a very over, over, over simplification. So um, there are at least two major forms of Indian classical music, uh, North Indian or Hindustani music, or Carnatic music, which is the South Indian classical music. And they are very different, although they're during different periods of time, and even now, they kind of are in dialogue with each other, but they're very different. Carnatic music, which I grew up learning, probably has some parallels to Western classical music in this very rigid, very codified form of uh, music. And North Indian classical music also has its own, you know, very specific elements, but it has this very interesting element of being mood-driven, driven by the time of day. There are certain ragas, which are kind of parallel to keys in Western music, where this raga evokes a particular time of day. So you typically sing it at dawn or you typically sing it in the evening hours, you know. And that, to me, just seemed so romantic. And in some ways, it had this kind of parallel to jazz. And Lakshmi came from South India, very steeped in Carnatic music tradition. But she fell in love with Hindustani vocal music and decided that she needed to reinvent herself to sing Hindustani music. 
Was there any restriction on, say, one form of music being sung just by people in that area? Yeah, in both the forms of music, uh, Hindustani music was kind of passed along within the family. And like many things, it was male-dominated. And then uh, during the era when uh, Lakshmi Shankar came about, there were starting to be more female singers. But even then, you know, it was typically from one family member to another. So you can imagine if, you know, these people hail from the north, they're not going to be seeking out students from the south. So that was a, a big geographical, cultural barrier that she managed to transcend. Why did you decide to tell Lakshmi Shankar's story? I was working at a racial justice organization, and, you know, this was during Obama's second presidency, 2011-2012, and I realized that, you know, while we talk about racial justice writ large, on a more subtle level, you know, it is through the lives of individuals, and as they uh, get erased, you know, sometimes through history, and their stories don't get told, that's another way that racial injustice works, in a more kind of quieter insidious way. So I think that, you know, although I was thinking about these things writ large, you know, every day, I was also thinking somebody, most likely not me, should, you know, write about Lakshmi Shankar. Um, I knew her my whole life, but that was as much a reason to write about her as not to write about her, because I really wanted to if I was to do this, I need to do it with integrity. And also, how does one do this? How does one write about someone? There's the craft of biography. There's the questions of publishing, all of that. And I was in my own world, you know, heading up marketing communications for a racial justice organization. So I didn't really have a playbook for this. But what I did have was access to her. And I, I thought of it as both a passion project, but also that how would I feel if this didn't happen. You know, I'm a hyper-rational person, and so it was a very odd thing for me to feel haunted. And I think particularly when I saw Ravi Shankar pass away the year before she passed away, I understood that we are not here forever. And so this idea that I had uh, was going to have to happen soon. What I didn't realize is that just uh, months after I decided and made the leap without knowing which way forward, I conducted a couple of interviews with her. She passed away. And mm. I had already told her that I was going to do this. And so I needed to just kind of push forward. Did she leave papers? Um, clearly, she left recordings. But what kind of access did you have to any of her writing if she you know, was a journal keeper or a letter writer and that kind of thing? Um, you know, when I hear a lot of the discussions about archives and all of this, I half chuckle because I think that for the lives of people of color, of immigrants, archive, it just has to be a looser definition, a bit of a different definition than, you know, often the conversations of, about archives typically are. But having said that, she was a public figure. She performed all over the world. She released many albums. So artistically, there was a lot that I had to work with. I also didn't want to completely discount the way in which I knew her for the past three and a half decades. And how did you know her? Our families knew each other because my family was very interested in organizing artistic programs by, you know, South Asian and Indian artists. And so growing up here in New York, they would organize these uh, programs. So I had a front row seat. I don't know that I completely appreciated that, but that was one of the things that I'm deeply grateful uh, for. But when I 
first went to meet her over the course of those few interviews, she um, provided me with a handwritten timeline. Now, uh, what is the merit of that? I would have to test that timeline. So I had this handwritten timeline and genealogy that she wrote and, and things like this. And, and I was really, you know, touched. And I felt like she was happy to see that her life was going to be documented in this way. But I will say that when I went to go do the work of creating my own timeline, you know, and chronology, I was very happy to see that she was completely precise and that helped me when there were gaps that I felt like I could rely on her because she had been correct about everything else. And, and many people had commented to me, including her son, about how precise she was and what kind of memory she had. So I'm really thankful for that. What kind of access did you have to other people who work with her, fellow musicians, um, other people in her life, who could give you a broader perspective? Yeah, that's a great question that I was asking myself as I embarked. So I was very sad when Ravi Shankar passed away the year before because they were brother-in-law and sister-in-law, but they were also close collaborators from, you know, the late 30s for decades and decades. So he would have been an incredible wealth of information. However, he did write his own memoir. And so that was really a crucial uh, jumping off point that I could delve into uh, to really understand since he was the seminal person in the movement who brought Indian music to the West, you know, his connections with Philip Glass and the Beatles, you know, so many genres of music, Coltrane. So I really did want to understand this from his perspective. And she does show up in his uh, autobiography several times, including her own wedding photo to his elder brother. So that was actually incredibly helpful. Uh, obviously, I would have loved to have interviewed him uh, directly. But I did get to interview her son, uh, her only surviving child, Kumar Shankar, and he actually um, was so supportive and uh, such a resource. He provided me with photos, and he also has an incredible memory because he himself participated on the sound side. He's a sound engineer, uh, as well as sometimes on stage uh, when she did her 1974 Dark Horse tour. George Harrison organized between um, his ensemble and this Indian ensemble, which included Ravi and Lakshmi and others, it was such a breakthrough thing. And that was the year that I was born. So that's one of the things that struck me is that even in my 44 years, I haven't seen anything like that since. So it was really wonderful to have Kumar Shankar's support as well as Ravi Shankar's daughter, Anushka Shankar, who is kind of his heir in terms of him passing on his sitar knowledge and compositions. I talked to her as well as Lakshmi's granddaughter, Ginger Shankar, and both of them are musicians. And finally, I also got to talk to her manager, particularly who focused on her European tours. And she was also invaluable um, in talking about her impact and why did she have such appeal in Europe? And like in France, she had a big audience. So how would you describe her voice? Her voice is actually so beautiful and so melodious. 
she had this three octave range and in Hindustani music particularly it often starts out very slow and deep and very meditative and then you slowly build and build and weave and you're in this particular ragas and Hindustani ragas unlike western keys you know you usually have the whole scale going up and coming down but uh, what is a little bit more trickier in uh, both of Carnatic and Hindustani music is that they could be in essentially one key going up and one key coming down. Mm-hmm. So a raga can have that complexity. So, um, you know, you have to have a, a lot of vocal dexterity. And the truth is, not all Hindustani singers have beautiful voices. For them, it's about the dexterity. It's about the thinking about the composition. And that's wonderful. In her, you had somebody who had all of that, but also had a beautiful voice, which was one of the ways that she also sang for Bollywood. And Bollywood, because you're essentially doing the music behind the actress who's lip syncing, typically a very beautiful actress. So you want this very beautiful, sweet voice. So she did that. She did jingles. Um, And so she had this voice that was very adaptable. She also recorded this Hindustani pop song that was composed by Ravi Shankar and produced by George Harrison. It was called I Am Missing You. And they recorded an Indian-style version with the Indian ensemble, and then they recorded uh, a more westernized version with the rock ensemble. And to me, it says a lot that... You know, she was the one uh, constant in both of those ensembles. Mm -hmm. In your quest to tell this woman's story, and her vocal quality was such an important part of who she was, how do you get the reader to understand what her voice was? This was one of those things that kept me up late at night. You know, this was one of the walls that I hit, you know, in this book that I was trying to figure out how do I get over it? Uh, Because so many times I wanted to just say, just go listen to her music, you know, and you'll see what I mean. But I considered part of my job was to tempt people to go and do that if they haven't already, or to have people who already knew her voice nod and say, yes, yes, you're totally right. That's exactly what it sounds like. So I'm hoping that that's, you know, what I'm able to evoke. It did force me as a writer to to really get into textures. I'm not synesthetic, you know, but I do have you know, when I close my eyes and listen to music, different colors come to mind, different textures come to mind. Um, and I felt like, you know, I was not only having to introduce uh, Lakshmi Shankar to many people who may or may not know her specifically or only know her in a very limited capacity, but I also had to introduce Hindustani music to people. And I literally stopped the book uh, four chapters in and do a primer. When she makes the leap to become a Hindustani singer, in order to really say, do you know what a big deal this is that she made this leap, you know, in all these different culturally significant ways, I felt that I needed to explain to people the whole body of music and Carnatic music versus Hindustani music and how unlikely it was that a South Indian Brahmin woman would come to sing Hindustani music. But in terms of describing her voice and describing raga and the way you kind of evoke it on the stage and it's a part spiritual, part meditative, part musical, um, sometimes very quiet, sometimes really raucous with the audience members participating and saying, yes, that's, you know, in, in, in Hindi or whatever the regional language is at that moment, and that it is a very community-building moment. It's not necessarily as tame as Western classical concerts. <laughs> so how much were you able to and include in your book about her personal life? 
there were certain things that I, I would ask questions in different ways, and I would not get answers, particularly about uh, her marriage. I felt stuck in some ways. I knew that in biography, you needed to include insights into someone's personal life. And so I decided some of the insight can be, I'm stuck. This is typical for uh, Indian women of a certain age. This is part of our culture. Maybe she didn't want to talk about this. So I decided, you know, although I can't probe even more deeply, what I can do is share with the reader, you know, my perspective. That is something that I took on in the book is kind of being the cultural navigator and really kind of guiding people to understand how big a deal certain things were. So one of the things when I was trying to figure out why is she not better known, there are patriarchal elements, there are racism, there's all of these you know major things playing out in the world, but there were also her own personality. And she was somebody who showed up, sang, there was no drama, and she was not somebody who drew attention to herself. You know, I wouldn't say she was a wallflower at all, but she was somebody who just was no nonsense. She wasn't somebody who sought out fame. She went where the music took her. Whether that's good or bad, ultimately, I do think that it contributed to the challenges of kind of knowing about her. But her Grammy nomination for Best Traditional World Music, to me, is really important. And I know it meant a lot to her as well. When was that? And what was it for? It was for her um, final album, Dancing in the Light. uh, And it was for a nomination for Best Traditional World Music Album. And it was 2009. Hmm. What would you say was the most difficult aspect of writing this particular biography? And how did you work around it? You know, my publisher is HarperCollins India. And so who is my audience? Based on figuring out who my audience is, I would figure out how much contextualization I need to provide. So who is your audience? My audience could be Indian American, could be from India, could be from South Asia, could be somebody who is a baby boomer who was from that era and remembers Woodstock and is like, huh, I've heard of Ravi Shankar and I know about George Harrison, but I don't know Lakshmi Shankar. Uh, So they're curious about that. And like I said, even within India, there's a way in which people are steeped in their regional identities. So even if you grew up learning Carnatic music, you might know nothing about Hindustani music. And here through Lakshmi Shankar, her whole identity, in my opinion, is about transcendence. And here's Kavita Das, reading from her book, Poignant Song, The Life of Lashmi Shankar. The screen lights up again with the billowing flames of Gandhi's funeral pyre, and through the spirals of fire and smoke, we get a hazy view of a vast crowd seated on the ground around the pyre. Wafting in the background are the strums of the sitar and sarod. The scene shifts to a sunset sky over the Ganges. At the center is Nehru played by Roshan Sait, along with some of Gandhi's closest allies, aboard a ferry boat. Nehru is holding Gandhi's ashes in an urn. As Nehru pours Gandhi's ashes into the still waters of the Ganges, illuminated by the sun's last rays, the strains of the sitar are paired with Gandhi's powerful words. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. The screen fades to black, and Gandhi's words and the accompanying music fade to silence. 
After a second's pause, the screen lights up one final time with the film's credits. As the first names roll across the screen, Lakshmi's lone voice, unaccompanied by any instruments, begins to sing a Hindu bhajan, beloved by countless Indians, including Gandhi himself. As the credits continue to roll, male vocalist Asit Desai begins to sing Gandhi's favorite bhajan. After the first stanza, Lakshmi joins in. Then, in the final two minutes of the film, we are treated to a string orchestration of this bhajan, which suddenly morphs into an Indian folk version with flute, shanai, and tabla goading it along to a faster and faster trance-inducing tempo. In the midst of its acceleration and building crescendo, the music suddenly slows and the instruments fade to silence. And then, just as it did in the beginning of the film, Lakshmi's clear, melodious voice, at once as old as Hindustani music, yet as fresh as a stream flowing from the Himalayas, sings one final soulful rendition. The final credits come to a standstill on the screen and then fade to black as they follow her voice into silence. Lakshmi's voice is the moving finale to a prolific film about the most famous Indian of the 20th century and perhaps of all time. Just as it does in this film, her voice has played a part in key cultural moments in the past century, especially given her role as a leading Hindustani female singer in the movement that brought Indian music to the West. But to truly understand her significance in the meandering path that Indian music took across the world, one must follow Lakshmi's own journey, one that started as a dancer, not a singer, one that started in India, but ended in the US, and one that touched every note in the scale of life. Thank you. That was author Kavita Das, reading from her book, Poignant Song, The Life of Lashmi Shankar, published by HarperCollins India in 2019. Kavita Das's interview was recorded during BIO's 2019 conference, held in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.